So <clears throat> I just escorted a man to the end of his life, right to the edge of the world, so to speak. It was a, a very private moment. I almost don't want to talk about it because it seems like it is something that should reside between the two of us and God. I hope he'll forgive me if I do talk about it without naming him or saying too much about the circumstances. It was a hospice death and I was his bedside companion. And it was a beautiful, beautiful moment when it happened. I was there for his last two breaths. I've been watching for quite a while and he was in the end of life breathing pattern. It's spoken of as Shane Stokes breathing where it's irregular and it's shallow and we knew what was coming but I, I spoke to him and prayed with him, prayed over him. I know from experience with this that what they say is true, and that is people can hear right to the very end and probably understand. And he let go. I told him he was beautiful because he was. I'd been there since well before dawn. And the sun came through his louvered blinds right around eight in the morning and splashed on his craggy features. And I told him he was beautiful and that I was privileged to be with him. Well, what happened then was another lesson for me in the beauty of the, the richness of the way we as humans understand death. And I want to tell you about that, share it with you. This is Duncan Fisher, and you're listening to No Sermons, the new podcast on spirituality for everyone. This happened at the hospice, as I say, where I, I spend my time. I belong to a team of people called the NODA crew, N-O-D-A, for No One Dies Alone. That's an initiative at this hospice. It's a hospice for the homeless to get them in off the street where they can die or sometimes not die because treating them well sometimes allows them to come back to life and then they live for a long time. It's also for people who just need some medical respite. They need an address and uh, a place to get their meds and keep their meds and someone to take them to doctors and things. And But about half the people in our our facility and our home, really, that's what it is, are there because they are going to step off the planet and they just need to do it surrounded by people. Mother Teresa says, nobody should exit the world without eyes on them, even as they came into the world. So that's what we do. Round the clock if we need to, keeping discreet distance if family or, or loved ones are near, but always being there. The last person I was with, well, her greatest fear was being alone. So we damn well made sure she was not alone around the clock. Anyway, this man, I'll give him a name. His name was Mark. Uh, I was with, he um, was a bit of a crusty codger. He, um, 
I remember him very well, cruising around the halls on his motorized chair, eyes front, kind of glaring. I don't know enough about his, his, his story to know why that was. Was it Parkinsonism? Was he somewhere on the spectrum? Was he just angry? Was he shy? I don't know. I didn't know him very well, though he was a fixture in the place. He wouldn't allow you get, to get to know him very well. That's just how he was, and we respected that. We gave him his cigarettes and opened doors for him when he went out to be with his friends and not talk to them. <laughs> and, and that was Mark. Well, Mark passed without a word, as would be Mark. He, um, he, he left us quietly, and I watched for a while and went and told the nursing staff, I think now he's gone. And they came in and had the, the hospice service come and declare a time of death and all of that. And they put one of the, the hospice blankets on him, one of the quilts that have been donated. We have, oh, 20 or 30 of them, and they they go on the body when he or she is taken out, and eventually they come back to us. It's just a way of signifying that they're, they're, they're going home from home uh, with our love, and they are not alone to the extent we can make that happen. We have another custom about blue, a blue butterfly moves from their door when they're in active dying over to a, a great big magnet board of blue butterflies that conform into the uh, with a, a ceremony into the the, the shape of the, the the latest number of people who've, who've died there we're now up to 127 anyway in comes our death doula our doula she that's spelled D-O-U-L-A, and a, a doula is somebody who's trained to help with someone's end-of-life journey with the practicalities of what that entails. Whatever anybody may tell you about death, it's a big deal. It just is. There's a lot to do inside and out. And while we're there for companionship, she's, she's there for companionship plus the practical matters of getting your life in order. It can be sentimental things that you need done or you need to do, and it can be things like contacting landlords or trying to find loved ones or arranging for cars that need, need disposing of. Anything at all, that's what a doula is trained to do. Ours is of a, a resident, somebody who came to us to die and then didn't die, and she went off and got trained. Many of the people who are on staff there are themselves residents, and we like that because they know what the journey is like, and they have given themselves over to assisting each other and just being friends with each other, and, that, and she's one of those. She's very, very gifted, wonderful person, one of those generous souls that uh, is in the right place. She came in with Roger. Roger is a cat. Roger is a girl cat, somehow named Roger. We have a hospice cat 
actually two of them sometimes, and have to be separated because they don't get along. And there's a, a hospice dog, a fat little senior citizen called Boo Boo. Well, Roger is kind of eerie. Roger knows who's about to pass. And Roger will walk down a hallway and hop on somebody's bed when there's about a day left. It's so reliable that the CNAs on staff watch for Roger, and then they know something's about to happen. We, we call that entering the active death phase. Dying isn't about systems stopping. It's about systems shutting down. It's very orderly. You can't tell how quickly it's going to happen, but you know what order it's going to happen, in, and you know what's going to come next. And Roger seems to know before humans know, and so Roger will come along. She came in with Roger, who, interestingly, had not come to Mark, and she tried to put Roger down on, on his bed. And Roger yowled and jumped off and ran away. And she said, yeah, sometimes Roger does that, and you'll see her sitting there looking around the room, eyes darting. I think she's seeing spirits. It's very common for people to talk about the spirits of people leaving when they die. It's also very common to talk about them, talk about other spirits coming to escort the dying or the newly dead. And you can see in you know, YouTube paranormal videos, sometimes there are flashing orbs or little lightning flashes uh, that people like to interpret as souls or spirits or something. And we do have in hospice work the, the phenomenon of visioning, where people will say, sometimes very matter-of-factly, oh, my sister is here. She's been dead 25 years. She's come to take me home. Um, some people think this is hallucinating. Some people think it's oxygen deprivation. Some people think it's drug reactions. Um, I doubt that any of it, because we know what hypoxia looks like. We know what drug reactions look like. Uh, we know what, what falling apart brains are like when they hallucinate. Visioning can sometimes start, oh, a month before the active dying phase, where people will be up and around and quite matter of fact and very lucid, very reasonable, and very aware and very rational. Uh, and they will talk about you know, what popular culture might call ghosts around. Or sometimes they'll talk about angels. They'll see these things. And that's the way Kim, uh, I'll give her a name, Kim Ardula understands this too. To her, it's very matter-of-fact and very reasonable. Oh, there are spirits here. They're doing something. Pretty soon they'll be gone. We have a Buddhist chaplain on staff who sees it differently. This person says uh, that may or may not be happening, but what's really happening is less of a continuing identity after physical death and more of a, of a well, she uses the language that I think is customary, of a soul of a person returning to its origin as a drop of water to the sea. 
And in that way of looking at things, you forget who you are, you become nothing again, and you go back to the source. Some, some people say, some people in that tradition or that collection of traditions say, probably from there you come back to earthly life and be somebody else again. And there's a cycle of this and eventually you step out of that and you're back into the great unknown whence you came and whither you go. I have a Seventh-day Adventist friend who was who lost a child to a terrible accident early in life. And he had somebody say that to him once, and he said he had a visceral reaction to it. He said that was the wrong thing to say to him because he said, well, what he'd been told was, I see, I see the eyes of your son in this new baby because there was a, a recent birth. And that was meant to be reassuring. Here he comes back and he's okay. He said, that was the wrong thing to say to me because I need to know that my son, the one and only who will ever be my son, when he rises again, will be not only himself, but his perfected self. He'll be back to the person he was meant to be and he was created to be and he was called to be. So there you have, right there, three very different ways of looking at death. Each meant to be comforting, each meant to be reasonable in its way, each well-intentioned. You have a kind of a spiritism, almost improvisation, based on what you see and what you kind of feel to be true and what seems reasonable. And you have a more philosophical take on all of this, which probably also seems reasonable to observers of death. And then you have a more traditional biblical-based one, which is actually more consonant with what Jesus in the Bible has said about death. He never said we separate from our bodies and go off in spirit form to heaven. That's nowhere in the Bible, though popular culture kind of thinks it is. What he said is, we fall asleep and we know nothing until I come back and raise you, Um, which hasn't happened yet. And paranormal things that do happen, and I have seen them myself, they do happen, are spiritual, but they're not dead people. I wouldn't say that to somebody who's just lost a person much of that is not my business, and I'm not going to invade in heartfelt territory like that, because you can't. But I just wanted to point out how rich this tapestry is of human understanding of this terrifying mystery of death. It is terrifying. And it's interesting to me that people hold these convictions all the way to the grave. They don't run away. They die the way they live, which is another truism in hospice work. That's exactly how it is. If you whimper in life, you'll whimper in death. If you're jolly in life, you'll be jolly in death, uh, and so on. Not my business entirely. I have my, my convictions. 
you'll have yours. But one of the things I really like about people, especially at the end of life, when we speak our truths, is the richness, the variety, the deep, deep humanness of how we, let's say, survive death. It's very human, it's very beautiful, and with this little talk, I just wanna share my observation of that fact. You'll have seen it too. You'll have seen people go through this. You'll have seen onlookers work to survive the experience. You yourself may be facing this, or you yourself may be watching it happen and understanding and experiencing it all. Just here to share the experience, that's all. Not explain it, not understand it. Just share it and acknowledge it and sit with it with you. That's all I have for now. I wish you all the best. Be well.